Hello, my name is Gene Quinn. I'm the IP Watchdog, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 103 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Gene Quinn, the IP watchdog, and we talk about the patent reform in Congress of the 101 section patent eligibility and about drug prices in, in connection with patents. But before we jump into the interview, I have some news for you, especially from the European Patent Office. The European Patent Office just issued a new decision of the Enlarged Boards of Appeal, G1-18, so the first decision of 2018. And this was about whether an appeal is inadmissible or deemed not filed when either the grounds for the appeal were not filed in time within the time limit of two months or the fee was not paid within this uh, time limit and the conclusion is now that if you do not pay the fees for the appeal or file the grounds for the appeal within the time limit of two months then the appeal is deemed not to have been filed. Another noteworthy thing that happened at the European Patent Office is that the rules of the procedure of the boards of appeal will be in effect starting from 1st of January 2020 and they have been published just recently a couple of weeks ago. So the main difference between the previous rules is that um, it will be very difficult to introduce new documents or even new arguments in the appeal phase. So my recommendation for the future would be to file the complete arguments and complete documents when you file the the first instance, basically, for example, the opposition. Today's guest is Gene Quinn. He is the IP watchdog for 20 years now. So this year is the 20th anniversary of the IP watchdog. And not only that, he's also of counsel of Baronato and White, and he has been professor, for example, with the John Marshall Law School or with the Franklin Pierce Law Center. And he has been on the podcast uh, two times at least, right? Thank you for being on the yeah, show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ralph. I really appreciate it. I think it is. I've been on several times. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So today we don't talk about software so much, a little bit, um, but we talk more broadly about what Congress is doing to patents <laughs> or uh, Congress is trying to reform the 101 and um, also Congress is dealing with, uh, patent, uh, with drug prices and in connection with patents and there is some discussion around that. So let's start with a more broad and general topic of patent eligibility. Tell me about what what this reform is about. Okay, the the reform is trying to really 
overrule the Mayo case and the Alice case. So Mayo was dealing with life sciences and Alice was dealing with software. And those two decisions in the U.S. have really made it extremely difficult for software and life sciences to get patents. Now, Director Yanku, who uh, runs the USPTO, has tried to um, streamline things and make it easier for people to get software patents. Um, and he's been doing that rather successfully. But in court, and when these things get challenged, uh, they still are not really standing up. Um, and so the way that we, we talk about it is, is that it may be easier to get these patents now through guidance, but it's not any easier to keep them. So reform is really necessary for innovators. Um, but so what they're, what the, the reform is really looking to do is, is to go back to the way that the U S used to be with respect to patent eligibility and have a more broad open-ended interpretation of what would qualify as, as patent eligible with the specific intent of going back to where um, most almost all life sciences inventions would be pat patentable and or at least patent eligible and uh, software would be patent eligible now there's no desire to make genes patent eligible. So this would not do that. Um, so there's been some fear that this change would, would make genes patent eligible, and that's not the intent. Uh, now, the, the bad news, Rolf, is that this unfortunately really is not likely to happen because there's a poison pill associated with the bill, which is they're also adding changes to 112F, which in the U.S. allows you to make patent claims in terms of functionality. And they're trying to codify the Williamson versus Citrus case. And actually, what I've been learning lately here is, is that behind the scenes, Congress would like to even go further than Williamson. So while the language of 112S, the proposed language, reads like it's a correct general statement of law, the intent is actually to go further than what the current law is. And the coalition that supports reform is going to splinter if that stays in. So half of them are okay with whatever they want to throw into the bill as long as we get 101 reform. And the other half sees this as all you're going to do is push the rejections from 101 into 112. And there's some merit in that concern. But from a litigation perspective, I think the reform is needed, even if that even if the rejections just get pushed into 112, because at least once you get your patent, then you wouldn't be able to get uh, dismissed in litigation on a motion to dismiss. So there's a lot of moving parts right now, but I have to tell you, it's not looking good from what I've heard. I see. Um, maybe a lot of our listeners are not completely familiar with the Mayo and the Ellis decision. 
Um, maybe can you just, uh, if it's possible, briefly summarize what these decisions meant for the patent system? So, yeah, Mayo is really the key decision um, because in Mayo, the Supreme Court deviated from 30 plus years of patent eligibility uh, jurisprudence. And in Diamond versus Deere back in the early 1980s, there was an explicit ruling that you were not to conflate novelty with uh, patent eligibility. And then Justice Rehnquist, who then later became Chief Justice Rehnquist, in, uh, wrote that you, you have an entire section dealing with novelty, 102. So although 101 uses the word new, that is not intended to be a statement or invitation to consider novelty because there's no way you can consider newness under 101 because it's just not tethered to any prior art. So since there's an entire section that deals with novelty, Rehnquist wrote and, all, and the majority agreed that you, you leave the novelty questions and to 102. So that was the law. And then in Mayo, they overturned that without saying they did. But they, what they did was is they said that you have to have an inventive concept in order to overcome one, uh, the 101 threshold. So what that requires you to do is to have something new in your claims in order to have them be determined to be patent eligible. Now, the, this is problematic because there's no... Uh, there, there's there's no consideration of prior art. So you can actually, we see this all the time, you can have an examiner unable to find prior art under 102, unable to find prior art under 103, and then still find it's patent ineligible because it lacks an inventive concept. Now that's just idiotic, but that happens, and it happens all the time. So Mayo significantly changed the 101 uh, framework, decisional framework. And that was the life sciences case. So that there was some hope that, that well, maybe that was just going to be a life sciences only rule. And then Alice came about a few years later in a software context, and the Supreme Court applied the same decisional framework in the software world. And so Alice deals with software and Mayo deals with life sciences and both conflate 101 with 102. Right. And there is, um, I think there were some other aspects to Alice, but they are not now um, uh, central to the new um, reform of, the, um, of 101, right? I mean, there were also like things uh, that, that uh, there has to be features that are that i think the supreme court didn't say they have to be technical but they have to have a technical contribution or something but uh, but that is not really central to the uh, to what's going on now right yeah no i i don't think so um but what, what i will say is that in america w when you're drafting or if you're drafting for america 
what you want to do, in, because this is what we do, is, is you want to try and hit the European standard, you know, the, the technical problem, technical solution. You know, I mean, if you're drafting for Europe, you're going to have the best chance in America because the reality is we, we know how to do it in the U.S. It just takes a lot of time because um, what, what we're talking about, Rolf, is a lot of different inventions that are inventions and they should be patentable uh, are going down as being patent ineligible, not because the innovation is something that is inferior or not unique or not re ready for patenting. Um, it's because of the way it's being described. So we know how to describe it. It's just that our clients willing to pay that amount of money. So the best thing that you can do right now is, is prepare your applications as if they're going to be filed in, uh, Europe and then file the same application in the US. Um, but I would agree with you because the 101 reform right now is really focusing on, to, I think, on the word new and trying to get the word new out of 101. And, and there, there's other language changes too, but getting the word new out of 101 is going to effectively overrule Mayo. And there's some other tweaks to it. And there were other things that were weird about Alice and, and Mayo both. But um, if, what, what you're going to do by getting this 101 legislation that's proposed is, is it will gut Mayo and Alice to the point where the courts are going to have to reconsider the entirety of, of the ruling. Um, because it will, I think, like a carpet, pull it, pull the rug out from under the foundation of that decision, those two decisions, really, and force the courts to reassess. Mm, I understand. Um, you briefly mentioned that there is some irritation of some activists about patentability of DNA in this context. Um, maybe we can just talk about the history. Uh, you already mentioned that human genes and DNA and the body have never been really patent eligible um, per se, but only man-made things. But maybe you can explain a little more. more. Yeah, I mean, there, there's fear that this was going to do something with respect to the Myriad case. Um, and in Myriad, they allowed, uh, or they prevented, rather, um, isolated DNA from becoming um, patented. And that was dealing with genes, and there's this fear, and it's an irrational, unfounded fear that people are going to be able to just patent you. Um, and that's never ha happened. And, but... You know, the media really, uh, really ginned that fear up. And, and part of it was be, because I think not, not too small part of it was because Angelina Jolie and others were writing these op-eds and scaring the bejesus out of people, uh, saying bad things. And, you know, you can't have these kinds of patents. And, and then you had the ACLU making ridiculous claims. And 
people's imaginations ran wild. I just had somebody, uh, and this was a, a student, a law student, um, tell me just the other day that the reason he thinks that the decision is correct is because without that decision, um, somebody could just take some of his blood and patent him. And I'm like, unbelievable, Ralph, unbelievable that, you know, people who are actually studying this actually believe that. I mean, there are people that, so this, this kid had to hear this somewhere, um, maybe from a professor, maybe from, uh, a textbook, God forbid. I mean, because it's never been the case, but, um, so there is this irrational fear and what, uh, what, Senators Coons and Tillis did is this fear started coming up was issue a press release right away and say, look, this is not what we're doing. The The bill is not going to do that. And uh, as the bill uh, continues to get language modified, I think you're going to see that clearer and clearer and clearer so that that line of attack cannot be used to bring it down. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the the core of the discussion was that for very short um, fragments of DNA or, sec or sequences of DNA, it's uh, the artificially made cDNA and the natural occurring DNA are not really distinguishable. Um, it's more like a technicality because of exons and introns and these kinds of things. But we don't want to bore our listeners with these technical things. But Yeah, no, but, um, you know, there is something yeah. worth mentioning there because uh, cDNA cannot be anything other than artificial or man-made. So if it's too short and it's – what the Supreme Court said is, is that if it's identical to DNA, then it's not patentable eligible and that should scare people because w if something that is man-made is identical to something that is made in nature then it's not patent eligible in the u.s and you know that 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 really if that ruling continues to be the case that's gonna uh thwart a lot of personalized medicine and i mean the ideal when you're talking about for example um artificial organs for would be ideal right i mean let's say you need a new kidney you you walk into the hospital on um monday and you you say here take take some of my blood uh i need a new kidney i'll be back next monday please grow me one you know and but if it, the whole idea would be is that that kidney would be identical to the one that you have right only only that it works properly so it would be identical to the one that you originally were given and um that would not be patent patent eligible And that's really going to be problematic. Now, people always say, well, you can patent the method, but no investors are going to invest if the only protection is on the method. Because and this is uh, this is a question of novelty, really, right? I mean, not of patent eligibility. I mean, the, the kidney, it will a human kidney will not be new, right? Because it has been there for a long time. Well, 
Yeah, but I mean, the thing that would be new would be is if it's man-made, right? And I do think that making an artificial, uh, if you have an artificial kidney, then that would be something that you could get a patent on. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken, but I, I think that that would have to be patentable. But um, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. But we, I think we got to figure these things out. And the problem, though, is is we're not even having that kind of conversation because we're stopping it at the front door of eligibility, and at that's not what eligibility is about. Eligibility is supposed to be the most wide net possible and only weed out the most egregious like an hg wells type time machine or a perpetual motion machine and those types of things are are patent ineligible but you want to have a huge net because if you don't you're gonna prevent the next generation of technologies and then let the other sections of the statute do their work right because otherwise you're you're gonna you're you're always gonna be uh having a statute and a body of case law that is designed for yesterday's technology and a patent system designed for yesterday's technology is a failure because innovation by definition has to be new so i mean i i get frustrated about these types of things and um yes i can understand you (laughs) because getting it right matters right um maybe we can briefly talk about um software and how software is affected by this reform if it goes through i mean um what what would reform mean for patenting software well, that's the that's a good question, and I think that that's why um, one twelve is a poison pill because the life sciences folks are are going to be on board because uh, the life sciences people that I talk to that are in the know and that also do this day to day and have clients on on um, you know big clients and see what's happening in the trenches. They tell me with with uniformity that something has to happen. Something needs to be done. The current uh, status quo is untenable. So the resistance is going to be coming from the software crowd. And the easiest way to define a claim for software is using functional language because what you what you do is you describe what the machine is doing right and and that's how uh you would talk uh computer engineers would talk that's how computer scientists would talk and programmers would talk but when you do that the claim that you wind up with is extremely limiting and not only that um the federal circuit has very specific set of rules for dealing with functional claiming uh, for software. So when you have functional claiming with software, you have to have 100% of the algorithm in the specification, uh, even if the part of the algorithms that you leave out are common knowledge. And there's a case that is shocking, but there's actually a series of algorithm cases 
and uh, the the Noah case says that there was agreed that only five percent of the algorithm was missing, and that five percent was a payment gateway, and it was not new, and and everybody of skill in the art would understand uh, how to do it. Um, the Federal Circuit said the doesn't matter whether everybody understands how to do it without a hundred percent of the algorithm present if you use functional language then the claim is invalid so now enter the proposed 112f what they're going to do is they're going to expand what it means to have functional interpreted that came out wrong i think what you're going to expand the possibility that your claim will be interpreted as a functional claim. So it used to be that you had to use quote means for quote in your claim. Then Williamson versus Citrix comes out and they said, well, it, it can be broader than that. You're not limited to just having means language in the claim to invoke 112F. So the Congress wants to codify that but go even further now it's the go even further that's the scary thing for people because we're already living under williamson versus citrix and they haven't explained how or why it goes further there's no real definition of what they're intending to accomplish um and with software if this winds up being expansively interpreted it could really kill a lot of claims and whenever ralph things um changes are made that are against the patent owner they're always retroactive when changes are favorable for a patent owner they're only ever prospective mm. <laughs> and that's unfair, but it's just the way it goes, and people are afraid of what this will do. Yeah, I understand. Um, so it would be probably the task of uh, the task now to educate the public what is really intended, or are they are they doing that, or are they trying to clarify what they well, are planning to do? Right now, I think that the task is to try and educate the Senate Judiciary Committee <laughs> because the, what, what I've been told, I mean, there's a chance this bill will not even get out of committee. Okay. Mm -hmm. Be because, you know, patents is not a bill or issue that is going to drive voters to the polls, you know. Um, and it's also not a partisan issue. Because um, there will be Republicans and Democrats on both sides. And um, members are not going to want to take a contentious vote over patents, you know. And uh, there will be big companies and uh, strong lobbying groups on both sides, I think. So uh, as long as that remains the case, if there can't be a consensus bill, I think this is dead in the water. And if half of the coalition that was supporting the bill splinters off, I mean, this is dead. I mean, de dead on arrival, you know? <laughs> yes, I understand. So maybe uh, the next person suggesting a reform leaves out reforming 112F. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I that's the way to do it, right? But I think one that one twelve f language is put in there to satisfy the tech folks, so that you know they they get something. They're not totally losing on one twelve on one hundred one. Um, so I, I think that if that were taken out, then you'd have the big tech people jumping up and down. So, mm-hmm. all right, different different topic now. We sure. I just wanted to briefly also um, cover the drug prices and how that is related to patents and uh, the discussion is related to patents. Maybe the prices yeah. are not really ready to patents, but the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so let's yeah, let's. You, yeah, you figured that out. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so that that was what I was going to say. You know, is this, this is not related to patents. That's the whole point. And uh, it, but it, it has become a patent issue in in the U.S. because um, people in a, in, a, in the U.S. Are, are fed up with paying high drug prices, and understandably so. And Congress is. Uh, probably tired of hearing these complaints and they need to be seen as doing something. Um, and what they're doing is they're going after patents, you know, cause right now in the U S uh, probably uh, public enemy. Number one is anybody who owns a patent. You know, it's not like it used to be Rolf, you know, if you were an innovator, you were, you were contributing to America's success. And now if you're an innovator, You're a bully, you're a patent troll, you're a villain. And so it becomes an easy target. And uh, so what they're saying is, is that because there are so many patents on drugs, on each drug, because uh, patents prevent competition um, by excluding the competition, that they, they are the reason that drug prices are high. And, um, I mean, that's just idiotic for so many reasons. I mean, because it, it, it supposes that getting approval from the Food and Drug Administration doesn't take any time and costs nothing, which is just not true. I mean, it takes a very long time to get approval, and the FDA process is quite expensive. Um, and not only just dealing with the FDA, but running all the trials, right? And then we, when you're charging for drugs you have to not only charge enough to make money on that drug but the reality is is 90 of drugs don't make money or lose money and if you want more granular stats it winds up being that about 10 of drugs are blockbusters 70 of drugs lose money and uh 20 of drugs make a little bit of money or break even um, so, you know, you need those blockbuster drugs to pay for the other 90% or really the other 70% that have lost money. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of reasons why drug prices are high. And the elephant in the room really is that Americans are largely paying for the research and development of drugs so that people worldwide have cheaper drugs that we do here in America. So, and I don't know whether folks around the world know this, and it's not probably in every jurisdiction that this is true, but in great many jurisdictions around the world, 
drug prices are much, much, much lower than they are here in the U.S. And it's because in those countries, they have price controls. So if you want access to their markets, you can only sell your drug at a certain price. Now, if that price is above the marginal costs, then you're going to do it. Now, that doesn't leave anything to extra to go towards uh, paying for the original research and development. So that winds up falling on the U.S. consumer, and increasingly so. Um, so what people see is you can buy the same drug for much cheaper uh, outside the U.S., and they wonder, well, why is that? That doesn't make a lot of sense. And um, it, a lot of times seniors will have these bus trips to Canada. You know, they'll go up to Canada and they'll get their drugs um, because they, they simply can't afford the medicines that their doctor is prescribing uh, if they don't do that. Or there's some Canadian pharmacies that'll, that'll mail order the drugs to you. Um, so that's the, what they're seeing and they're trying to do something about it and they're rather than in, in true political form rather than attacking the real problem they're looking at the easy uh solution now i don't think they're ultimately going to do anything about it i think this is more about an election issue um but who knows you know because being a pharmaceutical company right now is not is not great for uh, PR. It's e easy for Congress to beat up on those folks. Yes, I see that. Um, my personal feeling is that uh, in countries like Canada or in, in the EU, in Europe, in Germany, I think the drug prices are not completely unfair, neither to the consumer nor to the to the um, pharmaceutical companies. And there is tons of pharmaceutical companies outside the US that are also profitable. Um, but I agree that, um, uh, and we have the same problem as you with grey imports or, or illegal imports from third countries uh, of drugs, um, where, for example, in your case, drugs are imported from Mexico to, to, the, uh, to the US, or in our case, uh, from Africa to Europe. Um, and the drugs are sold at much lower prices in Africa because they have these controls, right? And I just see the prices in the US to be much higher than even in Canada or Europe. So maybe you're right in that um, the US consumers are paying for the, um, the basically the drugs in Africa or in some Asian countries. <laughs> and that's not, yeah. that's not well, fair. I, think they, I see that. I, I, <laughs> I think they are, but there's also more, obviously, than to it, right? Because there, um, as I understand it, there's only I think two countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical companies to uh, direct advertise to consumers, and the U.S. is one of them, and uh, so that adds cost, and then it also uh, makes the consuming public more informed which you would think would be good but then you're going to the doctor and saying well what about this drug that i saw on tv you know well the the drugs you see on tv are the ones that are uh, on on patent they're not advertising generics on tv and um so they're more expensive and they increase the prices and 
Uh, so there's a lot of other tangential reasons why their their things are higher in the U.S. as well. Um, so it, the problem I, I have with it is 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 not that there, I think there's an easy solution. I think that there's there's some identifiable difficult problems that are not being addressed in favor of the easy boogeyman, which is patent ownership. And that raises a, a problem with innovation. I mean, if you can't patent this stuff, you're just people aren't going to do it. And they're talking, Rolf, about limiting um, drugs to one patent. You can't. If you, I mean, there's a there's bills pending in Congress that say if you have a drug patent, you cannot get another patent on the same drug, and that's that's idiotic. I mean, it's I keep using the word idiotic, but I mean, some of the stuff is insane that's going on right now, and that is pandering to the public, and because that makes a lot of sense to people in the public, um, but. It doesn't make it sense to anybody who does patent work or anybody who innovates because um, there's all kinds of patents on different products once they're improved. I mean, you, you want to force people to get it right the first time? And that's a way to stall innovation for sure. Yes, I think uh, either you wrote this or I read this in another article that a lot of universities doing research on Uh, drugs they lost their funding because um, they couldn't there was not a big chance they get a patent on this or i don't know was was that yeah i don't know yeah i i wrote something like that dealing with uh it was more of a patent eligibility issue with um uh we published something about saint jude's medical center and also the cleveland clinic And what it, though, those deal not so much with drugs as much as medical diagnostics. Although I think, I think maybe the St. Jude's issue may have been some drugs as well dealing with cancer. Um, and it's not that St. Jude's is not ending their research. They're, they're still researching. It's just that they're looking to Europe, uh, rather than the U.S. for their medical diagnostics and, and certain drugs and that sort of thing, um, rather than the U.S. Now, the problem with that is is the U.S. is largely the unregulated market for this. And if you can't get protection for things in the U.S., then it becomes untenable because you can't attract the investors to spin off startups so then it's hard to justify that research in the first place. So you, they'll research in ways where they can actually spin off the startups, get the investors and get the products and to market, you know? Um, so it is affecting what even the most premier research institutions in America are investigating. Um, and they were, they're abandoning medical diagnostics. I mean, that's, that's horrible. I mean, I don't know whether, you know, people across the world know, but St. Jude's is, is, a, is a free hospital for kids with cancer. And it, it is, you, you should be so lucky to be able to have your, your child go there if they have that horrible affliction. And the Cleveland Clinic, I mean, my God, it's one of the premier research institutions in America. And these 
institutions are changing their focus based on our patent policy. And I, I, that's not resonating the way I thought it would. And, you know, maybe it's people don't realize what these hospitals do and what these clinics do. But I, I, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, how this turns out. So um, we've talked a long time now about patent eligibility and the implications. And um, but if if you could wish something that would, how how would you change the current patent system though so it would not be as screwed up as it is now? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I would have I would have two wishes. Okay, uh, the first wish obviously would be i would like to see 101 reform pass um and i would i mean if i if i would you know if you're you're my genie and i found the bottle and you pop out i would wish it not to include the 112 f provisions because they do scare me um although if push comes to shove and the only way to get 101 reform is to have them in 112 in i would i would do that you know, because you, you got to pick and choose your battles, and we need help on patent eligibility. So that's my one one wish. The other wish, and we'll probably have to come back at a different day to talk about this, but the other piece of legislation to keep your eye on is the Stronger Patents Act. This is like the third time, third Congress has been introduced. Uh, every time it gets introduced, it has a warmer and warmer reception, because I think people are really realizing that the U.S. patent system is uh, is not in a good place. It's out of equilibrium, um, and the Stronger Patents Act would bring it back to equilibrium um, instantly. Uh, and the big thing that that would do, I mean, it does a lot of things, but the the big thing it would do, in my opinion, is it would make it easier for a victorious patent uh, owner in a patent infringement litigation to get an injunction and that's important i mean right now you can't be guaranteed an injunction even if you win and i don't know why that is rolf because patents are supposed to be exclusive rights and all an injunction says is don't do what you were doing which seems to me to be just sort of reiterating what the patent grant says so. yes yes <laughs> that would be really great if you could be guaranteed that you get an injunction if you win a patent infringement case. Yeah, yeah I, see, I mean, that I was more that. or less the way it used to be. Yes, of course. Yeah, uh, exactly. That's also a discussion in Europe, but I think uh, in in Germany, at least, it, it turns out to be that, that we will be able to get an injunction in the future. <laughs> well, well, you, you know that um, a lot of folks in the U.S. are trying to find ways to sue in germany because um because in germany at least you have the op the ability to get some injunctive relief and and we I have mean, a preliminary injunction uh, based also right. based on patents so we can get an injunction on a really short order let's say a couple of days or something <laughs> yeah it's really it's, harmful that, that, sometimes <laughs> that's not going to happen in the u.s now i know you guys have a bond requirement right yes of course <laughs> 
So, I mean, so that, that scares people to some extent, but I mean, my goodness, you can get an injunction in Germany and that's why Americans are starting to, um, go more to Germany and German, uh, patents are becoming an important part of your portfolio. Yes. Yes. We see that. We see that trend that a lot of people are st start suing in Germany. Not only also because of the injunction, but also because the, the courts are quite competent, competent like Düsseldorf or Munich and Mannheim. And there's also not a lot of costs involved with that. So the, the total cost for the first instance will be around 100,000 euros or $100,000, which is nothing compared to the US. <laughs> no, I know. And the other nice thing about Germany, too, is your constitutional Supreme Court does not get involved. You have a court that specializes in patents deciding ultimately patent law. Right. That's not true. That's not true in America. Well, that's that's yeah. why we got into problems because we have a bunch of generalist judges who dabble a case or two or three a year deciding mm. the fate of the patent system and that mm. is so wrong i understand so um but we have talked a really long time now so if uh, people have questions for you remaining on their hearts to ask you where could they reach you the best way to get in touch with me is to look me up on linkedin um, and uh, find me there. You can also go to ipwatchdog.com um, and you can uh, shoot us a, a, a email from, from there. Just at the very top, we have a link to our contact information there. So those are the two ways to get in touch with us. And then obviously, hopefully read IP Watchdog daily. <laughs> yes, subscribe to IP Watchdog. Yes, please. <laughs> subscribe to IP Watchdog, yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, well, always thank a you pleasure, so much. Rolf. I mean, I think we could talk for another couple hours. I, I, know. I love talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for being on the show, Gene. <laughs> Anytime. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014, 
all rights reserved.